Good evening. Good evening. Hi, guys. Hi, guys. Welcome. Welcome. Hope your week was awesome. Um, anyone in here read Ruth 2 before tonight? <gasps> good job. Good job. Good job. Good job. See? It's getting on. All right. So um, we are in this deep dive into Ruth. Last week we went through chapter one. It was awesome. We got to hear some incredible things like, um, you know, Elimelech, the dad, you know, his sons were named. Do you guys remember what their names were? I honestly, uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Sicko and Crybaby, right? <laughs> that's kind of crazy. Their names were Sicko and Crybaby. Uh, literally, I mean, I mean, that's what it was translated to, but, you know, the Bible's full of all those kinds of interesting facts, things you never wanted to know. Um, and uh, tonight we're going to jump into chapter two, and this is an awesome chapter two. Um, gosh, I just love this story. Every time I'm, like, going back through and, like, studying and putting some stuff together, I'm, I'm like, man, this is, this is such good stuff. Um, so I'm excited. Who in here has ever seen the movie Hol The Holiday with, like, Kate Winslet and Jude Law and all those guys? You guys like that movie? You guys haven't seen it? Y'all haven't seen it? It's a great movie. Um, hey, check out this video real quick. Excuse me. Hello. Can I offer you a lift home? Why? You know where I live? Uh, I believe I do, yes. Good. Then that makes one of us. Your house is lovely. I've lived here 47 years. Back then, there were only six houses on this block. Every year, they tear another one down. Not that I blame them. They weren't that great to begin with. But that's how I got confused. I didn't recognize one house. Mm. That would be confusing. What part of England are you from? Surrey. Cary Grant was from Surrey. That's right, he was. How did you know that? Oh, he told me once. Well, I thank you very much, young lady. Please. Let me help you with that. I can't. Yeah, I, some, oh, thank you. There you go. Well, this was some neat cute. <laughs> Sorry? It's how two characters meet in a movie. Say, say, a man and a woman both need something to sleep in. Uh-huh. And they both go to the same men's pajama department. Right. And the man says to the salesman, I just need bottoms. The woman says, I just need a top. They look at each other, and that's the meat cue. Of course, this, this isn't quite that cute, but... <laughs> so, you're in the film business. All right. All right. Great movie. If you haven't watched it, check it out. It's good. Good stuff. Um, it's kind of like a rom-com. But uh, anyway, 
So, what did he talk about? He talked about this meet cute thing, right? And actually, we're going to see that meet cute in this story in chapter 2, right? Is the, is the meet cute for um, Boaz and for um, Ruth. And we're going to see that. Um, but just, I want to backtrack just a little bit and just talk through a little bit of what we talked about last week. Just so that, you know, you guys are up to speed. Um, <clears throat> so... Elimelech, um, his wife, Naomi, and the sons, they fled Bethlehem, the house of bread. And they went to Moab. Elimelech and all the sons, actually the sons got married, there we go, and then, then they all died. So then it was Naomi and the two daughters, um, the daughters-in-law, um, Orpah and Ruth. Now, um, Naomi said... I'm going to go back to Bethlehem. It looks like the famine is lifting over there. And so she went to head back, and she noticed that um, Ruth and Orpah were going back with her. And, and she said, look, don't come. Don't come. It's going to be a really, really, really hard experience. It's going to be way too hard. Don't come back with me. And, um, and Orpah was like, okay, you know, that makes sense. So I'm going to go back to my people. And, uh, and Ruth was like, no. I'm coming with you, and you can't stop me. In fact, your people are going to be my people, and your God is going to be my God, and where you go, I will go. You guys have probably heard that passage. So that's what we looked at last week, and, and um, you know, I was thinking about this. You know, Ruth could have chosen differently, right? She had a choice in this, and one of the major themes of this book, and part of the reason why we're looking at it is to, to talk about this idea of God's providence, how he works in and through the things that are going on in our lives to bring about his supernatural purposes. But that doesn't mean we, ha we don't have, it doesn't mean we don't have Double negative means positive. Okay, that means we doesn't mean we don't have a choice, right? We do have agency. We do have choices. We talked a little bit about that last week. So yes, we see that meet cute here in um, in this chapter. But we're also going to see like a lot of the ways that God starts to. Um, we've seen all these decisions that were made. Like Elimelech decided to take his family during a famine to a different country. We're going to see um, these tragedies that God allowed to happen start to play into this. And we're going to see that Ruth ends up back in Bethlehem, the house of bread, and how neat that is. Okay, so we're going to start with um, verse 1 in chapter 2. And um, you guys can totally join me here. It says, now Naomi had a relative on her husband's side, a man of standing from the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. So what do we learn right away there? We learned that this guy Boaz actually is a part of Elimelech's family back in Bethlehem. Verse 2, and Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, let me go to the fields and pick up the leftover grain behind anyone in whose eyes I find favor. Naomi said to her, go ahead, my daughter. She went out, entered a field, and began to glean behind the harvesters. As it turns out, as it turned out, she was working in a field belonging to Boaz, who was from the clan of Elimelech. So it's interesting that's kind of repeated there, that Boaz was from the, the family of Elimelech. And, um, and it, it kind of starts out by saying, like, this is a family member. And it's almost like the author's wanting us to know this 
prior to it telling us that this is where she ends up. Because I think it's kind of one of those moments where, like, this, you, you want to think it's a coincidence. You want to think, like, man, that was just a coincidence that she ended up in Boaz's field. But the author is trying to encourage us to think about this differently, that maybe it wasn't a, a, a coincidence. Maybe it was a part of God's providence. Um, one of the things that we're struck with right away is just the character of Ruth. Okay, she's in a new country, she's got a new culture, and she wanted to help the family. But it goes deeper than that. Like, she's not, <laughs> this is kind of bad, but um, I heard what's the difference between um, involvement or participation and commitment? What's the difference between involvement and participation and commitment? Okay, so it's kind of like the difference between milk and bacon. Okay, milk is involvement or participation, right? The cow's just there, right? He's just participating. But that pig, that's commitment. <laughs> Terrible, but you're never going to forget it. <laughs> Ruth is committed. She even said to, to Naomi, she said, um, I'm with you until death. So she's like committed. She's into this thing. And we see this interesting word here called gleaning. Okay, it was an ancient means of God to take care of the poor people, right? We, today we have like a welfare system. We make money, we give it to the government, they distribute it to everybody who needs it, right? In ancient times, actually this was set up in Leviticus 23, it says to go to your fields. So this is for the landowners, the people who had wealth. In Leviticus 23, in the Levitical law, it instructs them, go through your fields once, not twice, not more than that. Go through your fields once, leave a bit of fruit on the tree, leave a bit of grain in the field, and they would do up to like 25%, right? They, they would leave out there. And the fatherless, the widows, the poor can come after the harvest and glean from the property, glean from the fields, glean from the produce. And the interesting thing here is that it's hard work. It's not, um, it's not at all a handout. It's not, you know, you have to go in and put in the time, put in the work. Put and this is what Naomi's doing. And, and not only is she, is she doing it, she's like, hey, I want to go out and I want to do this. And so we, we kind of right away start to see the kind of character that um, Ruth has. She committed to Naomi that she's in this. She's committed. She's into this thing until death her people are her people. Her God is her God. And now we see her um, being productive, not sitting around, not saying, you know, well, and now I'm in a different country and um, I'm just going to wait and see what God has for me here. I'm going to, you know, sit and, and listen. And, and uh, I, th I think there's absolutely a time to, to pause, right? We know that verse very well. Be still and know that I am God. I think there's absolutely a time for pause and for rest and for listening. But I think there's also time for action and moving and getting going. And sometimes we hear God's voice a little better, maybe that way. Um, so, yeah, there's dignity in this work. She's going out. She's doing this back-breaking work. Um, 
Verse 4, just then Boaz arrived from Bethlehem and greeted the harvesters. He said, the Lord be with you, the Lord. And they answered back. They said, the Lord bless you. And this, I don't know, it's just kind of interesting. Like, um, I've never been in a, a job where you walk in the door and they're like, Lord be with you. And you say, Lord bless you. Like, that's just, to me, it's like kind of weird, but this is their culture, right? And, and But what I think is amazing is we start to kind of see Boaz's character, right? He's, he's a spiritual guy. We talked um, in chapter one about how Naomi is kind of, she's not really God conscious. She's not really thinking about her Lord Yahweh until we see the bad things happen, right? Tragedy drew her back to her awareness that there is a God and that he is providing and that he is taking care of her needs. Um, but here we see, um, in, in striking contrast, we see this guy Boaz who um, is a man of standing. He's a man of wealth. He owns land, and, and yet it hasn't taken tragedy for him to be in a place of, of awareness. And so Boaz is a man of character. Boaz is a man of character. And so he asks his workers, we're going to skip over a couple of verses, but I'll tell you what happens. He asks his workers about this woman that's in his field. He says, who is she? Where is she from? And they say, you know, hey, um, she's, you know, she came back with Naomi from, from um, Moab, and, and uh, we're really impressed. She's been working out here all day. She's been, you know, doing all this crazy stuff. She's been working out here, and... Um, and so they're pretty impressed with her. And then Boaz turns to Ruth and he says, look, this is dangerous. You're a foreign woman. We talked about that, right? We talked about how dangerous this is for her, how hard it was going to be. She's a widow. She is foreign. She's a single lady. And so he's saying, look, I've made provisions for your protection here on my property. I can't guarantee what's going to happen if you go to any other fields. It can be dangerous, he said. But look, here, I've told all my people to give you whatever you want, whatever you need. I've heard the story of, of how you have blessed Naomi, how you've loved her, how you've committed to her, and how you've honored, um, you know, my family that died when they went over to Moab. He said, I, I've heard all of that, and I want you to know you can have whatever you want. You can glean from the property, take whatever is there. Verse 10, she says, or uh, the, the story says, at this she bowed down, with her face to the ground, she asked him, why have I found such favor in your eyes that you notice me, a foreigner? Boaz replied, I've been told all about what you've done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband. How you've left your father and mother and your homeland and came to live with a people you did not know before. May the Lord repay you for what you have done. May you be, this is a blessing he's speaking over her. May you be richly rewarded by the Lord, the God of Israel, who, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. And um, it's just kind of beautiful there. Like he's, he, he sees like she's, she's, she's committed her life to something maybe she didn't even know what she was getting into, but the commitment was there. You know, it's interesting when we talk to, uh, you know, different people about theology and um, especially when you go to seminary, they want to, you know, tell you that, um, 
You know, people need to know what they're getting into. And if they don't, if they try to profess like a saving faith or a commitment or a belief, it's not real. And I disagree with that. And I think here we have just a beautiful example of like she didn't know what she was getting into. She just knew Naomi. And she knew the family. And she knew Naomi's commitment to her God. And yet she, it's like she borrowed off of that faith. She borrowed off of Naomi's faith. And I don't know, sometimes, sometimes that's helpful for me, thinking about, you know, difficult times in life where maybe, maybe I don't have enough faith to walk through something really difficult, but maybe I can borrow on somebody else's faith. They can encourage me through that. Maybe we can extend our faith to others and encourage them through difficult seasons. Um, Ruth responds to him. She says, may I continue to find favor in your eyes, my Lord, she said. You have put me at ease by speaking kindly to your servant, though I do not have the standing of one of your servants. So Boaz has taken notice. Um, Ruth basically stays for dinner. Um, he does that to honor her. And so she stays for dinner. Once she's done, she actually packs, she, she eats her fill, and then she, like, packs the food that's on the table, and she's like, yo, I'm going to take this home with me. And uh, Boaz even tells his workers, he says, um, you know, she can take whatever she wants, but he goes even further. He says, why don't you even let some grain fall from your bundles? Why don't you even let some grain fall from your bundle. So it's like there's a generosity. It's not like, um, you know, let's weigh how much you've taken because we want to make sure that it meets that 25%. You know, it wasn't like that. It was like he has a generous character, a generous heart in the ways that he's engaging with her. Verse 17. So Ruth gleaned in the field until evening. Then she threshed the barley she had gathered, and it amounted to about an ephah. And Ephah is about one month worth of grain for, for her family, for her and Naomi. And, um, but it's interesting, uh, we hear Jesus actually teach a lot in the New Testament about this idea of the threshing floor. And, and uh, I want to just share uh, briefly about what this is because you're going to run into it in the New Testament. And it's important to know what this process is. And this is why Jesus was teaching in a way that was relevant to people of his day. So, um, one of the commentaries that I, I was reading, this is how they defined the threshing um, floor. So once the harvest is gathered, the practice of threshing begins with the intentional destruction. This technique typically involved crushing the crop under the weight of a sledge or grinding wheel attached to a heavy, the heavy hooves of oxen. Next, the mixture was tossed into the air. So they've ground it down, and then they're, they're tossing it up into the air. The wind comes through and carries away the straw, the unusable straw, the chaff. And what's left is the grain. And that's what threshing is. So this is this back-breaking work that Ruth is doing, okay, to bring home um, food for her and Naomi. So Naomi comes home, she finishes the threshing, and she's carrying an entire month worth of grain on her back. She walks in the door. She's been there all day. Surely it was bittersweet, right? The excitement that God has provided, but being tired from a long day's work and that it's, it's not 
It's not a free lunch, right? I mean, you got to work for it. And she, so she walks in. Naomi's super excited, and she said, oh, my goodness, this is amazing. God has provided. Where have you been all day? And she said, I've been in the fields of Boaz. This is where, this is where Naomi, like, you know, in, the, in God's word, it uses an exclamation point. You can go ahead to the next slide, verse 20. She says, Lord, bless him, and there's an exclamation point. And I think that's beautiful. It's like showing Naomi's excitement. Maybe she had goosebumps, or maybe she had that. It was that moment where she's like, wow, God is orchestrating all of this. God is behind every single bit of this. Lord, bless him. Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, he has not stopped showing his kindness to the living and the dead, she added. That man, this is, she's explaining what some might explain away as a coincidence, she's explaining God's providence in this story. She says, that man is our close relative. In fact, he's one of our guardian redeemers. We're going to learn more about what that is in the coming chapters, but it's a powerful, powerful element to this story. Verse 21, then Ruth the Moabite said, he even said to me, stay with my workers until they finish harvesting all the grain. Naomi said to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, it would be good for you to go with the women and work for him because he is someone, because in someone else's field you might get harmed, right? There's, there's danger there. Basically, the Israelites didn't like the Moabites. And there's a history there. Um, basically, um, the, the Moabite people group resulted from the incestuous relationship that we see in, in the Old Testament where um, the child was named Moab. And so that's why they, they had this issue with each other. Um, verse 23, so Ruth stayed close to the women of Boaz to glean until the barley and wheat harvests were finished, and she lived with her mother-in-law. So I'm not going to talk much longer, but I do want to leave you with a couple of things. Um, one is you can kind of start to see a sense of God's providence working in the story, right? Last week we saw a bunch of decisions, but we saw some tragedy. We, did, we didn't really see any, any fruit of those powerful decisions. In fact, we saw one of the most incredible decisions, which is where Ruth said to Naomi, I am going with you. Your people are my people. Your God is my God, right? That is, um, we will find out one of the most powerful decisions and the implications of that decision, right? So we didn't really see any fruit, but here we see they've ended up back in the house of bread, Bethlehem. And God is providentially providing for the needs of Naomi and for Ruth. And Naomi sees something that's happening here. She sees, she, she knows God. She knows Yahweh. She knows his character. And she knows that he's working in this some amazing weight of glory that will soon be told. So we can get a sense of that. And I just, uh, a question I want to pose as we're getting ready to jump into small groups is, could this be a coincidence? I think as we, you know, um, approach the world, unbelievers, whatever, that, that it could be explained away as a coincidence. And, and, and what I want to ask you, maybe you can talk this out in your small group, is how do we, 
how do we reconcile this idea of God's providence? So he's using, it's not like a demonstrable miracle where he like has, has healed somebody of, of a life-threatening disease. It's more like he's using circumstances to bring about his will, okay? How do we reconcile that with the argument that the world makes that it's, it's just a coincidence? It just is coincidence that they came back to Bethlehem and she ended up in Boaz's field, somebody who loved her family dearly and wants to protect her and is generous. Could this be a coincidence? Have you ever had that happen in your life where something happens, some details get put together, and when you're on the other side of those details, you look back and you see God's hand like all over it. And you realize, man, he's been working all along through this. So September 11th, or sorry, September 2011, um, I remember my person, my own life, um, being in just a place of like tragic circumstances. I've told you guys my story. You don't need to rehash the details, but. But I was, I was at my lowest point in my entire life. I finally said yes to God's purposes. I surrendered. And the next thing I know, I was um, packing everything that I had and moving to Colorado. And I can't even explain it to you. Somebody asked me, why did you pick um, Nazarene Bible College to go to school to be equipped for what you felt like God was calling, to, calling you to? And the only thing I can tell you is that I went there because my parents went there when they were 18. That's it. That's all I knew. That's the only thing I thought of. I didn't research schools. I didn't think about, well, maybe this is less expensive. I honestly didn't even know how much it was per credit. Like, I was just like, okay, I'm going to Nazarene Bible College, and that's where I knew God wanted me. It's all I, it's all I could tell you is that I knew it. I, it was a burden in my heart. Like, this is where I'm supposed to be for this next season of my life. So I uprooted my life in March of 2012 and came to Colorado from uh, South Carolina. And within just a few months, I'm sitting in a class with a guy named Dr. Attic, and he comes up to me and he says, I taught your parents 30 years ago. That's kind of nuts, right? 30 years when my parents were 18 years old, they were newlyweds, they came out to Colorado, they went to Bible school, and he's telling me, I taught your parents, I remember them really well. I started to look back on my life and think, okay, is there something here is like God's providence at work? Is this something that he's put together, that he's putting me into? And then um, really soon really soon after that, I got a, um, I got an invitation to go preach for the first time ever. And I thought, man, this is so cool. Uh, I, I called my mom and I said, Mom, I am, uh, I'm going to be preaching for the first time ever. And she said, oh, cool, where's it going to be? And I said, oh, crap, I never asked the guy where I was even preaching at. So I hung up, called him back, and I said, hey, where am I preaching at? And he said, it's this little, little church out in Kiowa. And uh, so I hung up the phone, I called my mom back, and I said, hey, it's going to be at this church in Kiowa. I didn't have a clue where Kiowa was. Never heard of it. And she said, wow, because that's the first place your dad preached. 
when he was at Bible college. And uh, so this is actually a picture of the first time my dad preached. They're out in front of this building. Um, actually, I got to show Hayden this building the other day when we were driving through Kiowa. But this is my brother. And actually right here, my mom is pregnant with me. 30 years previous, I was at this church. And then I step into God's purposes for my life. And he's got this already going. There's a trajectory there. There's a legacy. There's a heritage that I'm stepping into that he has been paving the way for decades. Through all the heartache, all the tears, all the lonely nights, all the frustrations, but all the wins, all the amazing stuff, he was using every bit of it providentially to grow me, to, to, to equip me for such a time as this. What I want to encourage you tonight, I don't care if, if it's vocational ministry or if it's engineering or teaching or, or being a barista or whatever. When you say yes to God's purposes, For your life, you're stepping into a trajectory, a legacy that he has made for you specifically. And I think there's going to be a moment for each person when they say yes to God's purposes and it's been years and years and years and they turn around and they see. Maybe we call it stones of remembrance, right? We see that in the Old Testament. Maybe there are these stones of remembrance throughout our history, our lives, where we see God's hand providentially moving and working through all the details, the bad relationships or the good relationships, the trips, the families, the heartaches, all of those things. And you end up here and you're like, man, all this played a vital role in God's providence in my life. We see that in this story here. So, one thing tonight that I want to just leave you with. If you don't know, go. If you don't know, go. One of the most frequent conversations that I have with folks, especially. So, I believe, I believe 100% that your 20s will set the trajectory for the next couple decades without a, a shadow of a doubt. It's when we're building our faith or a family or career, whatever. Um, and it's, it's these moments, it's these years that God, he, he sets your life on a trajectory and you can either jump on that ship or you can reject it. If you don't know, go. And here's what, here's what I mean is if you don't know where God wants you if, you, don't, if you're here tonight and you're like, man, that sounds great, crispy, but I don't know that it's that crystal clear for me. And, and I, I, I would push back on that and say I didn't have a clue until I was 28. But if you don't know, if you're here tonight and you're like, man, I don't know the direction, get moving. Go. Don't sit around. I was talking with somebody a week ago, and they said, you know, um, I just, I don't know where God wants me, and um, I'm just waiting to hear from him. And I think that's awesome. I think there's definitely a time and a place for that. And maybe we default more to the busyness. We fill our lives with busyness, and maybe it would be um, encouraged to pause more often, right? 
But I think a lot of us, too, we, we say we're, we're waiting to hear from God and we don't know what his plan is for our lives. And we're waiting and waiting and waiting and waiting. I want to read you a quick passage from Acts. I love this passage. It convicts me always. Acts 16, 6 through 10. It says, Paul and his companions traveled throughout the region of Phrygia and Galatia. Having been, listen to this, this is insane. Having been kept by the Holy Spirit from preaching the word in the province of Asia. What? The Holy Spirit prevented them from preaching the, Holy, from, uh, preaching the gospel in a region? Did those people not need to hear the gospel? I don't know. God knows, right? His providence. He's working. He's guiding um, Paul as he's planning the gospel and, and preaching the gospel and planning these churches. Verse 7, when they came to the border of Mysia, they tried to enter Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus would not allow them to. So here's another place. He's like, I'm going here, but the Holy Spirit said, no. So they passed by Mysia, and they went on to Troas. During the night, Paul had a vision of a man in Macedonia standing and begging him, come over to Macedonia and help us. After Paul had seen the vision, we got ready at once to leave for Macedonia, including that God had called him to preach the gospel to them. So here's my question. What if Paul was like, I don't know where God wants us to go next. We're going to stay here until he tells us. Doesn't seem like that's Paul's character. It almost sounds like Paul's like, you know what? We haven't heard from God. We're going to go over here because I know these people need the gospel. And they head that way. And it's almost like on the road, while he's moving, while he's going, God's like, no, I don't want you to go there. I want you to go over here. And he does it. So what I just want to encourage you this evening is that God is providentially working in all of your lives. Every one of you. He's paved a road of purpose and meaning and value, regardless of what your vocation is. And I would just say, if you're here tonight and, you're, and there's any question, God, is this? am I doing what you want me to do? Get moving. Do something. Try something. And I promise you, if you're trying something, if you're doing something, he's going to say, I'm glad you're where you're at, or I don't want you to be here. And I think we, through that process, get to hear God's voice in our lives. We certainly see that in the, in the story of Ruth where she commits to Naomi, I'm coming with you, period. I don't really know where I'm going. I don't know that I'm, I, I am aware of what I'm signing up for, of all the things that I'm signing up for, even though she was strongly warned by Naomi. She's like, I'm going anyway because I want to move. I want to I want to be moving. And it's through that process that she happens to land in the field of Boaz. And we're going to see next week why that's so important. Father, thank you. Thank you for this story that is so powerful and convicting us of, of being on the move. God, um, help us to find a balance between uh, and, and know and discern those moments where we need to stop and listen and know and be still versus being on the move and, and being um, 
aware and, and, and taking initiative and through that process discerning your voice and your will in our lives. So God, would you just continue to grow us through this? Help us to see that you are working in our lives and have been and have been since before we were born to draw us unto you, to create us and mold us into um, the person that you have envisioned for us. We just love you in Jesus' name.